Hi, my name is Leaf Monster. And I'm Fiddlehead. You're listening to Lacing Boots, inspiration and guidance for adventurers. Well, maybe we should start. Uh, we should start with a reading, perhaps just something fun. Okay. What would you like me to read? Well, I'd love for you to read the uh, the strange wedding. Was it a wedding proposal? It was an engagement announcement. I think I have to pull it up. Hold on. Things I wasn't planning for. And one of our pastimes is reading the obits and fiddlehead has a obit voice which she may or may not use when she reads this uh quite interesting uh, little article here that she sent me the other day that i thought was quite wonderful if i can find it why did you decide to send it to me that fateful day um, I don't remember how I found it, to be completely honest, but my guess would be somewhere in the bowels of Twitter, uh, which is the only social media page I use. And I use it, I will say to the public, for professional purposes to connect with colleagues, which is true. But the real reason, the deep, dark reason, is certainly procrastination. <laughs> Yes. So I'm, I probably found this when I was scrolling through Twitter, avoiding writing or grading or any of the number of tasks on my to-do list. And uh, it looks like I took a picture of this on a computer screen, which is why I say it's probably Twitter. Excellent. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Dr. Matthew Johnson and Miss Jennifer Bear Cullen are pleased to announce their engagement to be married in February of 2022. Dr. Johnson, son of the late Walter J. Johnson of Clark, New Jersey, is a well-known professor, historian, and author. Miss Cullen is a celebrated behavior specialist born and raised in the Alkiski Valley by her late parents, the beloved William and Martha Bear. Colton Cullen, the son of the bride, is delighted to share in this miracle of love and devotion he's witnessing for the first time in his life. He would like to thank his stepfather for their genuine loyalty, honesty, and protection that neither he nor his mother have ever known before. As a diamond is produced... Only under intense heat and pressure. Jennifer's beauty derives from enduring decades of narcissistic attempts to defeat her virtue and crush her spirit. 
These sociopathic attacks backfired. Matthew is ecstatic to be the only man adequately equipped to satiate Jennifer's long, unsatisfied yearning for romantic attention, affection, and love. Similarly, as gold is refined only through intense heat and flame, Matthew's strength of will derives from enduring decades of pathological contempt, deceit, and hypocrisy. They failed to break him. Jennifer is overjoyed to finally provide him with the unconditional love, undying respect, and gratifying intimacy like no man has ever experienced. To put it simply, they won. <laughs> so it's, it starts out pretty benign, like, okay, that sounds pretty normal, and then it takes a turn in many different <laughs> strange directions. I mean, is it is that possibly real? Oh, I'm certain it's real. Wow. Why not? Wow. You only potentially get to announce such a thing one time in your life. Mm. I mean, maybe two or three times if you're really lucky, but probably mm-hmm. maybe only once. Mm. Well, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to send that to me. Uh, I definitely got a kick out of it and I thought uh what a what a wonderful way to to uh, start the evening out with a reading. And, <laughs> this and, has nothing to do with the like theme of our <laughs> podcast at all. And I would like to uh, congratulate you on that voice that you used. It's so sweet and so lovely. And I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. You are so that. welcome. That was um, very lovely. It just turns out that my obituary voice, my wedding and engagement announcement voice are all the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although you do tend to use a bit different intonation in certain circumstances. That's true. That's yeah. very true. Mm-hmm. The uh, the obit voice is just a little bit different. It's a little twangier at times. It seems <laughs> got a little more twang okay, in the voice maybe. when you're reading those obits. Yeah, it sounds kind of dark, but yeah, obits are a regular. Obit readings are a regular pastime around here. I think it's a nice way to remember people. That you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, but think about it this way. Somebody's family member or, you know, partner, I don't know, whoever sat down and had to write that obit. They had to condense that person's life. Everything that happened down into essentially a tiny newspaper clipping mm-hmm. spot. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know. It's kind of nice that we read them aloud. I, I think it is too, and 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 we don't do it in a in a mocking way. I, no, we, we should be clear about that. We do read some obits from time to time. We do. Um, I particularly enjoy some of the stories about their lives. You know mm-hmm. about you know what they did during their lives, and uh, some of the some of the names from the obits are interesting. Names from the past. I love the random bits of information that mm-hmm. are thrown into obits. They mm-hmm. just don't connect to anything else in someone's obituary. They're going along and along and along. They worked so hard. They volunteered. And then all of a sudden, and, uh, you know, they liked fishing. Mm. And it's just very random where it's sort of placed in there. John was an active member of the church. He sung in the choir every Sunday. John built birdhouses. Exactly. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Mm. 
What do you think your obit would say? Ooh, I don't know. Although there are people who do like practice obit writing for themselves as a mm. reflective tool to think about what they would like to have people be able to say about them. Interesting. Yes. So are you going to write your own obit and leave it in your, wa- in your last will and testament? I think that would be brilliant, actually. Then mm. you could really, really nail it. It's true. I could talk all about how <laughs> wonderful I am, how beautiful I was. Mm. How skilled you are. How skilled I am or was. I guess it would have to be past tense because mm. you would have right. died. Yeah. That's right. Otherwise, they might think you're coming back from the grave. You might have embodied somebody else. And you're well, but I writing. could talk about that. I could talk about my plans for haunting people. Wait, what? (laughs) While you were saying that, I was like, (laughs) what if we started sending in obits for people that didn't exist? Oh my God. Would that be wrong? That would be very wrong. Don't do that. Okay. I was just joking. I was asking for a We actually do take the obits seriously. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We do. Okay. Okay. All right. What are we here to actually talk about now that we've wasted all these air minutes with... Well, (laughs) we are here to do a post-mortem... On our trip. Oh, look at you making the connections. Uh-huh. Nailed mm, it. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we uh, obviously we survived our trip and we're still talking. Mm-hmm. So step one, survive trip. Number two, still talking. Check on both accounts. Yep, well done. So this was a 25-mile hike, roughly. And we kind of outlined the hike during our last podcast. And so now we'd like to fill you in on exactly what happened. And if you don't mind, I can start with kind of my thoughts on, or the thoughts that were going through my head Mm -hmm. the day before we were going to meet. Go for it. So the day before we were going to meet, we were talking on the phone a pretty fair amount. Uh, You were up here the week before we left. So this would be the week of Thanksgiving. And we had gone through and had been packing some food and things of that nature. And the day before we were supposed to go, we were kind of frantically checking the lists and making sure that we didn't forget anything. And I was trying to get some sleep, uh, get to sleep at a reasonable time. And finally, after we talked and kind of went through the list again, I said, all right, I'm just going to put my bag in the car and I'm not going to open it until I get there. And if I forgot something, hopefully it's not that important. When you're weighing every single thing that's in your bag, you're not bringing anything that's not important. Finally, I just got to a point where I just put the bag in the car and went to bed. And by went to bed, I mean laid down in my bed and tried to go to sleep and then couldn't (laughs) fall asleep because I was just amped for the next day. So I finally got, got to sleep, woke up the next day, Made some coffee, got everything ready to go. I had I had uh, my buddy John coming to watch the dog. So that's how we solved that problem. Um, what do you do with your animals if you need to go hiking? You make a new friend and invite them over to see if they would watch your dog. Now, I, I should say that I, I took some care when, when meeting this person and making sure they were cool. You and, also would take Ronan on a backpacking trip, just not right now. Yeah, and I'm glad we didn't take him along on that because the weather was pretty extreme, and we'll get into that mm-hmm. here a little bit later. But we did see, we did encounter two other pairs of hikers, and they both had dogs, and both mm-hmm. their dogs looked fairly unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think their dogs were well prepared. So I get on the road, 
a call fiddlehead and trying to understand if she's feeling the same way that I am. And I think that you are, and I'll let you reflect on that. I finally pull up to the parking lot of Topoka Lodge, get out, go in, check in. And then right, right about at that point, I come out and I hear you coming. But I was a ball of nerves by that point because I was nervous about, are we going to be able to, f- to even find this place, get on the trail? How accurate were the uh, notes that I'd taken? How good was my research? Are we going to be able to find the campsites? Did we bring enough food? Did I plan adequately? Is my phone going to run out of batteries so I can't use the GPS map? Just all sorts of stuff was going through my head because I haven't done this in such a long time. That's how I was feeling kind of going in to the beginning of that. And I'm kind of tensing up just even thinking about it right now because it was just like it was it was fairly intense, you know. I've spent the last 10 years in a desk job and now I'm getting ready to go into the wilderness in the middle of winter with the storm coming in on Thursday night. It was pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about what you were feeling kind of the day before and the day of. I think the day before you and I were feeling very similarly. And you alluded to this earlier, but a lot of my stress or concern was coming from the fact that I couldn't see and touch every item we had packed because we were in two separate locations. We were packing according to the shared list, but we each had the separate items at different places to pack. So I didn't actually see you pack everything. You didn't see me pack everything. We weren't able to, in the same room, sort of one person has the checklist and the other person is calling out the items as they're being packed. We weren't able to actually do that. And that is just, I mean, it's not something that happens in your adult life. If you need to pack and go somewhere, you are the one who packs everything and you touch every item to ensure that the things you need are really there. So that was kind of interesting because I really didn't anticipate stress coming from that sort of specific, uh, deriving from that specific issue. So I was certainly nervous. And the day of, uh, you and I both had to get up fairly early to drive to the lodge and then from the lodge to drive to the trailhead. So I was a little tired that day. Um, I had slept fairly well. I think I got more sleep than you did the night before. And thank goodness, because I slept terribly on the trail. So I'm glad I got one night of reasonable sleep. But it was still less hours because we had to wake up early. And, you know, my stomach was all tied into knots. And I had little butterflies. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be able to eat anything before we go hiking because my tummy is all unhappy. And I've got all the stress hormones that's going through. And... I put my bag in the truck, bed, and Gertie, and then I sort of thought, okay, you know, I'm I'm driving away with the truck. I'm not turning back. That's it. The same kind of feeling that you had mentioned. And then I drove up to the lodge, and you were there, and uh, it was really, really nice to see you standing there and know that we were about to start on our journey together. And you pulled up. We greeted each other and started to put everything into the truck. Mm-hmm. Then we got the map loaded up on the phone and drove to Teleco Fish Hatchery. Mm-hmm. It's a trout hatchery. It was about, what was it, a two-hour drive? 
Yeah, about two hours. Maybe maybe more like an hour and a half. I don't think it was a full two hours. And the last hour was in the in kind of a valley, and it was a very kind of steep gravel road that wound, and there's big boulders, big rocks in the road. Kind of rough. Finally made it down there, found the hatchery, got out, parked the truck. And you, you had done something very sweet. You had brought along some lunch that we ate, and I remember we put the bags in the back of the truck, dropped the tailgate, and then all, and then you broke out this lunch that we ate, and that was really nice. So we got <laughs> we got some nice food right before we got on the trail, and walked around a little bit. I was having a bit of a bit of trouble finding the trail, and so we turned around and walked back to where the truck was, and then sure enough, there was a trail. So we got on the trail, and that was kind of the moment for me where everything kind of clicked into place because we were. I mean, I was pretty nervous. We didn't talk a whole lot on that on that truck ride up there. We didn't. Um, we did talk a little bit because you did almost miss our turns multiple times. I like how you glossed over that in your summary of that drive. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. You were kind of a hot mess, to be completely honest. Um, you, let's hear here, we got out of the Topoka Lodge and you missed almost the first right. The very first turn we had to make. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I think it. I think you you almost missed a couple of them, and we actually had to reverse at one point for you to pick back up mm-hmm. on the turn you missed. Mm-hmm. And then we were we were going to take the right to go onto the gravel road from the nice you know paved highway, mm-hmm. and you just kept going straight. And I said, Nate, where are you going? And you were like, oh, I I don't know what to do. I'm like, well, there's no place to turn around. You actually had to, amid this extremely curvy, somewhat dangerous road, had to do, what is that, like a K-turn or a J-turn? A J-turn, maybe. Whatever yeah. letter it was. It's like Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> <laughs> you actually had to turn around. Otherwise, it would have added uh, 30 minutes, I think, more to our trip. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, usually I'm I'm fairly I'm a fairly decent navigator. Well, um, Fiddlehead might might have a different opinion, but I do for a living. I do show up at a lot of meetings, and you can ask my coworkers. I'm 99% of the time there. So, point point being, I can navigate fairly well, but I was so distracted that day just by like thinking through everything and trying to make sure I didn't miss anything that I was missing, missing some turns along the way. So you are right about that. Mm-hmm. I will admit that openly. Mm-hmm. I'll own that. As you should, because yes. it happened. It did happen. <laughs> and so we found the trail and, and I think the first part of the trail was actually quite lovely. There were trees, there was flowing water. Sun was out. The leaves yeah. on the ground. Yeah, beautiful blue sky. And then the trail got a little more challenging. It reminded me of a forest service road. For those of you who haven't heard that term before, it would be like a four-wheel drive trail or a logging road where it's not single track, but at one point it was used for vehicle traffic and it's now part of the BMT. This road was covered with leaf litter, thick leaf litter. And underneath the leaf litter, there were small rocks maybe the size of i don't know maybe six four to six inches in diameter and they were covered with leaf litter so you couldn't see what you were stepping on and every time you put your foot down these rocks would shift 
and it was just it would just wore your feet out just like crazy so we had about four miles of that I would say four or five miles and by the time we got to the first uh, campsite my my feet were getting a little sore just from the from the rocks and I thought oh man this is not a good way to start you know um, but during that first you know four or five miles that's when we were kind of figuring out what this is going to feel like you know the packs felt good navigation was going good we had really nice weather and we got on the trail more or less on time uh for from what we had projected and then we got to the first campsite uh right on time as well Mm -hmm. and the campsite was was beautiful it was kind of at bend of a of a hairpin turn and it was just right off there a nice little single track trail and then a wonderful little campsite uh, stream was there, then earshot of the tent. And as soon as we got there, we put our packs down, uh, just started setting up camp. We each had, we each had our own activities that we had talked about before that we were going to do, making food, putting the tent up, getting the sleeping bags together. And, uh, it, it went really well. I mean, that's that first day of setting up camp, I think is when a lot of things can go wrong. And if there was, if somebody forgot something or there were some other sorts of friction. I think that would, that would be an opportunity where there could be kind of some tough times if, if there was a, a short, a shortfall in the planning stages. But I think that first night went pretty well. What do you think? I think it went pretty well. What were you thinking might go wrong for us that first night? If something got forgotten or if we couldn't get the stove going or if the water pump wouldn't work or we couldn't find the campsite, that was my big that was my big concern. Or there's a piece from the tent that was missing. Or I mean, there's mm-hmm. just so many little things that can go wrong that can really add some unpleasant layers to a trip like that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. There was something really lovely about that first night when we sort of figured out our, our rhythm, our pattern of activities. You started setting up the tent, finding a good spot for it. It was a very moist floor. So it did take a little bit of work, I think, for you to find an appropriate spot for the tent that was dry, that was up on higher elevation than the area surrounding it. What was lovely is there at all of the campsites, there was a little spot for a fire. And so one of the most welcome things for me on that first night and sort of when I knew we were going to be okay for the next few days was when you managed to build a fire with... um, you know, a decent amount of wood was left, but a lot of it was uh, wet, not mm. dry. And you managed to get a fire going that first night. And that's an amazing morale boost, I think. Absolutely. That is a, an amazing morale boost to have that fire. And uh, you had gone out and find some, you'd found some little pieces of tinder. Mm-hmm. And I was going to this trip not expecting to have a fire at all any of the nights. I was not expired, expecting to have a campfire at all. I guess that that's probably from growing up in Colorado. It was just really unusual that we would actually have campfires because it's so dry. There's always burn warnings and things like that in Colorado. <clears throat> but in this part of the country, there, I think, is a culture of having fires at campsites in the wilderness and people do a really nice job of leaving uh wood uh, for the next person to be able to build a fire so we try to keep that in practice as well and we'd leave some wood and some kindling and during the days we would gather some some birch wood 
some birch bark, you know, if there was a, a dead birch tree uh, or some birch bark that was just kind of flaking off, we'd gather that together and put that into our packs. And that makes wonderful tinder for fires. And the name of the uh, campsite that we stayed at on the first night is the waterfall at Sycamore Creek. Uh, it's a distance of 4.4 miles from the Teleco Fish Hatchery. Uh, from the, the fish hatchery to that campsite, it's about 1,500 vertical feet. And the campsite is at mile marker number 159.8 if you're heading northbound, also known as Nobo. And there is plenty of water there. Um, and if you are thinking about planning or, or taking this specific trip that we're talking about in the last episode, in this episode, you can find details about mile markers, uh, campsites, and all of that actually on our website at lacingboots.com. Click on the plan tab and you will find it right there. It's free, downloadable, available to you. Yep, it's all ready to go. You can literally download it. And it has uh, elevations, mileages, it's got detailed notes on all the campsites. So it's literally the exact plan that we were going off of mm -hmm. for our trip. So it has been field tested by mm -hmm. Fiddlehead and Leaf Monster. <laughs> Leaf Monster. Arr. But I think that first night for me, I had a rough night. And the tent was comfortable. The sleeping pad was fantastic the first night. The sleeping bag was great. But I am at living in an apartment in a busy area. I am very accustomed to nighttime noises. I have very loud, obnoxious, rude neighbors above me right now. Um, if they're listening, I hope they know who they are. <sighs> can I can I just can I just throw something in here real quick about the neighbors? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So, the neighbors are definitely not listening to this, so you can feel free to say whatever you want okay. to. I just wanted to just sidebar just really, really quickly. So the neighbors have a routine of leaving their alarm clock running on loud <laughs> every morning for several hours. Yes, they do. I don't understand. Anyways, that's my mm -hmm. my bone to pick with them. They have, uh, they have a lot of issues. Um, they get into fights somewhat regularly, quite loud. And then the alarm clock issue, which the alarm clock isn't set super early in the morning. So I'm usually already awake by the time that they're getting out of bed. It's just that I can hear their alarm clock throughout my apartment. And I guess they don't turn it off or have an automatic off after a certain amount of time. So it just keeps going indefinitely. And how one of their neighbors that actually shares a wall doesn't complain is beyond me. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So not having those those reassuring sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about how normally when I sleep, I'm hearing my neighbors, I'm hearing the traffic outside, I'm hearing the music blaring from people's cars, and I can sleep through all of that because that's the noise that I'm, uh, air conditioners coming on and off. Those are the noises that I'm accustomed to after living in a more urban environment for a few years. I'm not used to hearing strange rustlings mm. outside a tent, which is easily penetrable by any given creature, like a 50-pound raccoon. They exist, 50-pound raccoons. Tell us more about the sounds, like, specifically that you were hearing, and describe those for us and how it made you feel. 
Well, the first night we had, of course, the sound of water nearby, which I do generally find soothing. Um, And I thought that the water that first night would be sufficient white noise to help me sleep through the night. But I would just occasionally hear the sound of, you know, like little feet rustling in some leaves, like a little scratching noise or um, like a distant sort of call of something. Mm-hmm. Um, that first night I didn't hear any specific calls that made me uncomfortable or worried, but all of the rustling and various things, it reminded me as I was like laying in the tent and you were just completely asleep. And I was laying there thinking, how on earth is leaf monster completely asleep right now? How is this happening? But it, it made me feel very vulnerable, mm. um, because we are such vulnerable creatures mm-hmm. you know being sort of taken from the suburbs and uh cushy jobs and being put you know back outside for a while and i think that's a very healthy feeling to have it's not something i think is negative wholly although it did mean that i i didn't get a great night's sleep i think it's good to feel those feelings every once in a while i agree and as you noted i did fall soundly asleep after a little while but the first night when we were uh in the tent we had cleaned up camp we had thrown our food bags and our trash bags over a branch to get them keep them away from bears and other critters and we uh had the headlight on we went and got in the tent and that was great got into our sleeping bags it was super warm uh, and cozy, and we had these amazing air pads that we were sleeping on <clears throat> keep us insulated from the ground, and those worked out really, really nice. And uh, I think we read a little bit that night, and just kind of visited and talked. And then when it was finally right time to go to bed, I laid there for probably a good 45 minutes and had kind of a series of strange thoughts that were kind of uncomfortable and you know, kind of interesting at the same time. And they were also centered around, you know, the fragility of life and how vulnerable we were out there. And it was kind of um, disturbing in a way, because uh, I think, you know, being in a city or being in a setting where you just have such easy access to everything that you need, if something bad were to happen, like you cut your finger, you could get access to medical care, you've got access to food, everything like that. And being out there with no cell phone coverage and several miles in and et cetera in the middle of the night. And even if you made your way out, um, you were, you know, a good two or three hours away from anything else. So that was part of the thought. And then also the thought of how people interact with each other and, and, is there is there a invisible force between people on the planet that is that is interacting and pushing and pulling people around? So I had some interesting thoughts that night, but as Phil had said, I did eventually fall asleep, slept pretty soundly that night. I did wake up a couple times, and you know when you wake up, you kind of listen and zoom in on every little sound that you hear, and there are some interesting sounds out there. I think I was expecting to hear coyotes, maybe owls, but there's just a lot of rustling and there's a lot of strange, there's just a lot of strange sounds out there. Mm-hmm. And I think if you spend enough time out there, that would be become like an air conditioner, become like a car, but being put 
into an environment like that after not experiencing it for a long time, it, it is, it does kind of shake a little bit, mm-hmm. but in a, in a positive way overall, I think. Yeah, definitely. So we had a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. We had access to wonderful clean water through the waterfalls. We had a fire. We slept. We woke up. We had some delicious instant coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which we did a taste test on. Did we talk about the taste test last time? I don't think we did, actually. But we did do a taste test. You uh, brought home three different, three different varieties of instant coffee for us to try. That is true. I brought home, um, we, we got a Starbucks brand coffee, uh, instant coffee, and then we got a Taster's Choice, I believe, right? And then mm-hmm. what was the third? Cafe Bustelo. Cafe Bustelo, that's right. We are not sponsored package. by any of these companies. Uh, they were just what was readily available in instant coffee form at our local grocery store. And we love coffee. Yes, we do. And it was very important to us that we had coffee and um, that it wasn't completely abysmal. Mm -hmm. I was actually really surprised by the results of our very scientific experiment. Uh, It was a blind taste test. Fiddlehead with her more refined palate was the (laughs) panelist. (laughs) And and I I set up the experiment. Uh, We used filtered tap water, ice cold at the beginning of the heating process. And I got a uh, one little packet. They come in like single serve packets for, uh, you know, when you're on the road or if you just don't want to mess with a big, a big container of instant coffee. I mixed the three of them up in water and presented them to Fiddlehead. And she tasted them. And I was surprised by the winner, but the winner was... Taster's Choice. Taster's Choice. 99 cents. 99 cents for like five or six or seven of them. I think it was six packets. Six yep. packets. So yep. that's that's our choice. You don't have to take our word for it. You know, we're not the snobbiest coffee snobs out there, but... It's true. It's you true. Know, we... I, I do still have a problem with the environmental impact of single serve Agreed. instant coffee. So. I will say that in the store, you can definitely get instant coffee in non-single packaged form. You can get uh, one sort of glass container. I know that comes in a glass container full of instant coffee. And then you could portion it out yourself before you go on the trail, obviously, into whatever container you prefer to use. But Taster's Choice actually won out. The cheapest one was the best one. I was really surprised. but. Yeah. Uh, you know, Taster's Choice, if you're looking for a sponsor, just feel free to reach out and let us know. Yes, we are willing to accept free coffee as part of our compensation. Not all, but part. So it was really lovely to have coffee on the trip. And of course, everything tastes better when you're on the trail just because you're in the middle of the woods and you get to enjoy like a luxury like coffee. Mm-hmm. And you did a really nice job of preparing in advance meals and also executing those meals on the trail while we're on the topic of of coffee do you have any insights uh into how you reconstituted food or what you might do differently what worked well tell us a little bit about that yeah so in the first podcast episode i talked a little bit about how i figured out 
how many calories we needed using the Pandolf formula. And there are links to sort of explain some of that on the website as well in the audio tab. So if anyone's interested in finding out more about the Pandolf formula, you can go to lacingboots.com to the audio page and uh, click on those links. So I had calculated out the calories that we both needed, and I I don't remember the exact estimates, but I feel like it came down to like 2,600 calories for me, and what, 3,500, 3,600 for you? 4,000? Okay. I think, but I I don't, I didn't actually give you 4,000 calories a day. That wasn't in the meal plan. I like scaled it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Even after scaling it down a little bit though, what I found is that you were not nearly as hungry as I was expecting. I thought that was uh, strange as well. Like I, I thought I was going to be a lot hungrier than I was. Yeah, as did I. I, you know, and and then I discovered I was definitely hungrier mm-hmm. than I thought I was going to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely learned quite a bit about our individual body, uh, bodily needs. Mm-hmm. In terms of calories and uh, that does change some things that i'll do in the future with regard to packing food i made too much food the first night um, and this is sort of the the unfortunate thing is because we were also in two different places um and because we were both working so much before we took this trip I didn't take the time to get the dehydrator from you early enough to test out some of the recipes to see the volume it would actually make when it was rehydrated, for example. Mm. So I, the first night I made like a quinoa stir fry that had been dehydrated and then I rehydrated it and I looked at it and thought, holy shit, that's a lot of fucking food. It's <laughs> way too much food. It's obscene. Um, and like, sure enough, we couldn't eat every single bit of it. So, you know, it, and then you run into the problem of leave no trace, right? So I think I learned quite a bit about, you know, if you're going to dehydrate your own food in advance, definitely make sure that you've tested the recipes first. Go ahead and dehydrate it at home, then rehydrate it to see how much is the volume, you know, at what point do you actually feel full, is it actually going to fit in your cook stove when you rehydrate it? Uh, that's another kind of important point that could easily run into problems, especially if you're backpacking with more than with two people or more. Um, so for the Thursday night meal, we were we were definitely at full and complete capacity for that little stove. So that I think those are the main takeaways for me was, you know, to plan in advance, try to dehydrate and then rehydrate the food at home using your stove. Um, and, uh, yeah, yep. Test it as much as possible beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we definitely ate well on the trip. Uh, we had more than enough food. I was also... <laughs> Literally more than enough. We packed out food. I mean, I was surprised at how little I was eating on that trip. Um, I, I definitely lost a little bit of weight, but I just didn't have the, like the hunger that I thought I was going to have, which was really strange. I'm not quite sure what I, what to make of that. Um, but the food was excellent. We had, we had a good variety and, you know, had a lot of hot meals and it was just, it was a real joy to, to enjoy that food out on the trail. 
the next morning we woke up, uh, the itinerary for the next day was uh, 9.3 miles. We were going to end up at a campsite called Cold Spring Gap. Uh, also had water at the trail. Uh, this was a fairly decent incline day. It was 2,500 vertical feet and uh, average gain of about 5%, a little over 5%. And the first part of that hike, we were on more of that 4x4 four four trail, Forest Service Trail is what I would call it. And then we um, hiked for a couple miles and ended up at a big, what was it called? Uh, Wig, W-H-I-G-G, Wig Meadow. Mm-hmm. And that was a really, really neat place where we stopped and uh, there's some nice boulders there where we set our packs down and had some lunch and visited and took some pictures. And that was a, that was a really nice uh, place to stop. So I'd recommend if you wanted to build that into your trip, that's a fabulous place to stop and break for lunch, especially if you're staying at the campsite that we mentioned, that we mentioned initially. And there also is some parking uh, nearby uh, Wig Meadow. Yeah, you could you could easily just drive a vehicle there. I mean, as long as the vehicle can withstand some rougher terrain. You could drive your vehicle there, park in the little tiny adjacent lot, and then use one of the campsites at Wig Meadow because there are some sites there. So that's another option. Um, if you If you live just in that general area and you wanted to just go enjoy a night out under the stars, that could be a really nice place to go. And then, so we, we stopped and we had some lunch. We surprisingly had, well, you had cell service at Wig Meadow. So you were able to do a quick check-in with John to make sure that our uh, trail scamp was doing okay. And then we were able to go on some single track for a while. Yeah, I was really excited to hear back from John, make sure that uh, trail scamp was doing good. And I was super excited to get on that single track. And um, I was we we had a little bit of a sense of urgency because as we were hiking, we could see to the northwest that there were some clouds coming in. That was that would have been uh, Thanksgiving Day, right? Yes. Yeah. So that was Thanksgiving Day, and I could see in the northwest that there were some, um, you know, some clouds starting to come in. We knew that there was a cold front coming in, and so there was going to be some. Pre- some precipitation, uh, freezing weather. Uh, we didn't know whether it was going to be snow, sleet, or just rain, but I did know that we wanted to get in there, make sure that we could find the campsite, get everything set up so that we could have, have dinner and get into the tent before it started to, um, to rain and get, and get cold. So, uh, at mile marker number 169.1, Nobo, uh, you come to a trail junction. And if you face straight east, there is an old roadbed um, <clears throat> that's overgrown a bit. It's about a third of a mile. It's downhill. Uh, as we were walking down there, we're like, oh, man, you know, is this, is this the right place? Like, this looks a little overgrown. Doesn't look like there's been anybody down here. Boy, I'm glad we went down there. Mm-hmm. Because you get to the bottom, and there's a beautiful campsite Nice and flat, a nice fire pit, plenty of firewood. And then if you continue east, maybe another tenth of a mile down a little trail, there's a vigorous stream and plenty of water, which I was really glad to find because the next day uh, we had a pretty serious hike and there there was questionable water from that point on. Uh, In doing some of the research, what really stood out to me is how seasonal some of this water can be. 
Um, but I think our experience up there was that there was, there was an abundance of sources for water. Mm-hmm. So we were definitely carrying some extra water, but being the first time through, we definitely did not want to run out of water. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that campsite you mentioned, absolutely gorgeous, really beautiful. And it was another situation where there was a little area for a fire and people had left behind firewood and various things. I mean, it it was just a really welcome thing to see after our first longer day of hiking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these uh, little fire rings are really, they can get really moist. And so what I, what I did, what worked for me, you know, everybody has their own method, but I would get... Uh, some sticks that were maybe inch and a half in diameter and I'd lay two parallel and then I'd lay two uh, perpendicular on top of that. So it'd be two parallel, like facing north and south. And then there'd be another set of parallels facing east and west. East and west. And so it's almost like um, Lincoln Logs in a way. There's one way to think about it. And then on top of that, I would stack almost like a, a raft a raft of little sticks to kind of get everything up off the ground. And then on top of that, I would build a little area for tender and smaller sticks. And then it would be it. If you, if you wanted to look it up, it'd be called probably like the top down method for starting a fire. Uh, It's pretty common for folks who burn a lot of wood stoves to produce like a very efficient fire that doesn't produce a lot of smoke. So that worked out pretty well. We did achieve a fire. Each and every night, even the day after Thanksgiving, we were st- still able to get a fire started. I did cheat a little bit that night because everything was just damp and really, really wet. Like there was no dry tinder. But the first two nights, I was able to get it going with just what we could find and a lighter. So that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we get to the campsite. We immediately uh, set up tent and get water going and get water pumped. Amanda was able to pull off. Uh, Amanda is Fiddlehead's uh, fictitious name. Her birth name is Fiddlehead. Amanda (laughs) is what she goes by sometimes. That's right. Uh, Was able to pull off a Thanksgiving feast, which was amazing. Mashed potatoes, apple crisp with apples from uh, a neighbor, good neighbor John up in South Dakota, gave us some apples we brought down. That was a great meal. Gravy. Gravy. Stuffing. Stuffing Mm -hmm. on the trail. That is nuts. Yep. Mad. Props. It was delicious. Absolutely delicious. And we did have, we had weather moving in as we had the uh, fire actually starting. And I was trying to finish cooking. And I didn't know if we were going to make it because I didn't know if we should expect the the rain, the sleet or snow to hit us all at once. We had a few drizzles. It was getting colder. It was definitely blowing in. So I remember that particular night as we were setting up camp, it, there was a little bit more intensity to it. Like, all right, let's get moving. Let's get this taken care of because we don't know how much time we have. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I felt that too when we were up there because I knew the storm was coming. You knew the storm was coming. Mm-hmm. We were starting to see and feel the changes. There was a little bit of a breeze picking up. You could feel the temperature dropping. And uh, thank goodness we got that fire going because that was just a really nice way to, to end that day. It was almost 10 miles. Um, I think we were pretty, we were, we were tired by the time we got there for sure. Mm-hmm. And when you take your pack off, you're just like, oh my gosh, that feels so good. <laughs> and then yeah. you're frolicking around camp for a little bit, but we didn't frolic too much. We, get, we pretty much got to work that night. And, and it's, it's a fun work though, you know, setting up the camp and, and preparing food and throwing, you know, we would... 
get the uh, bear bag ready to get that going. Uh, we had a rain fly, and the rain fly has a cargo uh, area uh, on the side where we can put backpacks. So we did put our backpacks and our boots in there. Uh, the rain uh, started, yeah, like Fiddlehead said, it was uh, drizzling a little bit there. Uh, a few rain splatters as we were kind of preparing food and eating. And then it started to drizzle a little bit more right as we were kind of going to the tent. I think it was still a bit light out. Uh, I think we had just put our, put the headlight on and then we went and got in the tent. Uh, what was that night like for you? That night was really interesting because we had inclement weather pretty much all night long. And there were a few things that I really note about that night. It was obviously cold. I mean, we had the front move in. We had what seemed like sleet. We woke up to ice encrusting the tent and frost, and all the leaves were covered in ice. I mean, it was really gorgeous in a way. We had some, we had condensation build on the inside of the tent that dripped down on us, which was okay. Um, and then I remembered very distinctly, I couldn't tell what time it was. We went to bed so early that night because, of course, it gets dark according to human time um, very early. Mm-hmm. And so we went to bed early. I woke up early and laid there for a little while. And, you know, in my mind, I thought, oh, okay, it's probably about five o'clock, maybe six o'clock in the morning. And it definitely wasn't. You were completely sound asleep. And you and I usually would wake up around the same time. So it was the very wee hours of the morning. But the color of our tent with the brightness of the evening or something, I'm not sure what it was, but it felt like, you know, my time was really, really screwed there, my sense of time. And did we, we looked at the, we looked at a clock then, didn't we? Yeah, I think we did. And it was like three in the morning or Mm -hmm. something? It was. We stayed up for quite some time and chatted. We just visited with each other. Mm. Um, And then eventually, I think we we drifted back off to sleep for a little while. Yeah, I'll never forget that night. And that, that was a special evening. and. I'll never forget looking at the the clock even. I was like, okay, it's like three in the morning. Um, I'm going to have to get out and go pee. And so when I went out, it was very cold. It was rainy. And I was like, oh man, you know, and I could, I could tell that, that the, the rain fly wasn't completely waterproof on that tent. Uh, it's, it's a really lightweight tent. I would call that maybe like a three season tent. It's really not designed for winter use, but it is very lightweight. Yeah. That's the mountain aspect Mountain Hardware Aspect 2 tent. Yeah, Mountain Hardware Aspect 2. And I did do a, uh, actually we did a joint review on that, just kind of a quick uh, walk around on that tent, what we like about it, what, you know, what we might change on it if we could, and then like some video of, of the interior of it if you wanted to, to check that out. There was definitely some water getting in. So I don't know, you know, in the southeast with how much precipitation we get here, I'm not sure that that would be the best choice. Mm-hmm for desert or summer camping in a in a less wet climate that'd be a really really nice choice but overall i was i was pretty satisfied with it so we wake up finally the second time in the morning and it's time to get up now and it was pretty tough to get out of our bags that morning did you stay warm that night 
You know, I did stay warm. I stayed very, very cozy and warm. And that's the night that actually I had to take my thermals off because I was too hot. Right. Yep. I was too warm. It was so cold that night. And yet I was too warm in my bag. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's a that would that's a good problem to have. I'd rather be too warm and be able to take layers off than to be too cold and not be able to do anything about it. So Yeah, strong agree. Strong agree right there. Strong agree from Fiddlehead. We don't always get those, but when we do, we celebrate them. <laughs> we treasure. We're going to celebrate the small wins. Mm-hmm. Um so we get up and it is it's cold. I would say it is 25. Yeah, it was below Below freezing, it was for definitely sure. below freezing. Yeah, for sure. the The condensation on the tent was was now frozen, so mm-hmm. the little droplets on the rain fly, like what I remember, was taking the rain fly off and shaking it, and all sorts of little frozen droplets just went flying everywhere. Mm-hmm. And but there was still some unfrozen moisture, so everything was wet and damp, and in some state of of being frozen or actively freezing. And it was every so everything was a little bit heavier, and we also had a lot of water that we were going to carry that day because we were preparing to not be able to get access to water from that point on, I believe. Right? There was a couple piped springs that were available potentially that were on the map, that were on the plan that may or may not be running. So we decided that you know we better take quite a bit of water along when we go because we don't know when we're going to be able to get to water next. So we had, I would estimate, 16 to 18 pounds of water. Holy cow. Because the bladder, we've got a, what is that thing? How many liters is it? 200 ounces. So we had a lot of extra weight. And then we had also some wet gear, which weighed a little bit more too. So uh, we packed everything up. Uh, I, I do think it's noteworthy to say you were carrying all of that. Not all of it, because you, you have your wet gear and all the water. You had you had quite a bit of water too, because you had all your water bottles full plus the collapsible water bottles. Yeah, but you so, you definitely took the lion's share of that weight. It was it was a heavy pack that day, and there was a lot there was a lot of treacherous steep terrain that day, and we hiked up the point three miles, and I was I could feel how heavy it was mm-hmm. compared to what it was yesterday. I was like, oh man. Okay, it's a little different. So the next day we had a little over seven miles. So that was, we were at the cold spring gap. And night number three, we're going to make it all the way to the big fat gap uh, tent ground uh, tent site that was about 7.3 miles. Uh, Big fat gap is at mile marker number 176.4 Nobo. And 1,300 feet of net elevation gain between those two campsites. But a lot of it is a lot of up and down. So even though you're only netting 1,300 vertical feet that day, there's some pretty tough terrain. So we hike up the three miles to get back to the the junction. I think there was maybe three or four trails that came to a junction at that point. Mm-hmm. And we we continue to, to follow the, the BMT, which is also known as, as the Bent Mackay Number 2, if you're going to use uh, another uh, national naming convention for that same trail. It's also known as, as Bent Mackay Number 2, same thing. And there were no, there was a period of that trail where there were no uh, emblems or trailblazes. For the Bent Mackay, it's a single dime, a single white diamond, and that's how they blaze trail on the BMT. But there was a, a section of trail where there were no white diamonds, 
Mm-hmm. Pretty much all of day three and day four for us, we saw almost no white diamonds. Mm-hmm. After we got out of the, the valley where the campsite was, it was it started to get colder. And we noticed that the, the wind was really picking up. We did not have much wind down in this campsite because it was kind of sheltered by um, just the terrain that was around it and also by some of the trees. Mm-hmm. And we, we start hiking up along a ridge line and the wind is blowing basically straight across. And it's blowing water particles that are forming maybe a half inch thick uh, white crystal material just like growing sideways off of anything that it could stick to. I think that's what they call ice. It It is ice, but it was like a powdered sugar form of ice. It was not like a clear ice that you might get from sleet. Leaf Monster here. Thanks for checking out the first half of the BMT adventure. We've got the second half almost finished up, and that'll be coming out on a subsequent podcast. Keep an eye out. That'll be here in just a couple weeks.